0: The scripture reading for this morning is from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. One of the things I would do from time to time when my kids were little was change the words of the story I was reading to them can't remember any particular examples off the top of my head, but uh, you can imagine the giggles or perhaps abject terror that would result if the velveteen rabbit were to suddenly eat the very hungry caterpillar. What, What if you heard a story like this? Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy passed through the wardrobe into Narnia, all sounds right so far, but they soon fell into the slough of despond. Thankfully, they were rescued by Aslan and made their way together to the celestial city. If you know Pilgrim's Progress, and you know the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know that those two things just don't go together. Or imagine this one. Oh, you Star Wars fans, or you Harry Potter fans, imagine a story like this. A Wookiee named Chewbacca invites Harry Potter to attend the Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry, where he learns the way of the Force and soon joins Princess Leia to fight Voldemort on the Death Star. (laughs) This story doesn't make sense because the characters are inhabiting the wrong story. And unfortunately, it can feel that way for Christians at times. It can feel at times like we're living in the wrong story. And you can imagine the people whom the author of Hebrews was writing to were feeling that way as well. They had put their trust in Jesus Christ, but where had that led? Things had got worse for them, not better. They were being driven from their homes. They were being put in prison. Eventually, some of them would be killed. And you can imagine them saying, this isn't the way the story is supposed to go. And many of us are wondering the same thing. I'm a Christian now. Things should be getting better, shouldn't they? But I seem to be struggling more with sin, not less. I thought I'd be moving ahead in the world, but I seem to be falling behind. This can't be the way the story is supposed to go. The people the author is writing to were turning away from Jesus and back into Judaism in the face of the persecution and the hardship they were facing. So he reminds them that Jesus is the fulfillment of the story. Jesus is the fulfillment of their Judaism. To turn back to Judaism from the way of Christ would be to fail to remember the story that they were in. And one of the things I love about Hebrews is not only the way it shows how Christianity fulfills the Old Testament story. Jesus has come. There's no need for temple, there's no need for priest. The final sacrifice has been made. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament story. I love that about Hebrews, but I also love the way the author of Hebrews draws out the continuity that we have as Christians with the Old Testament story. We, like the first readers of Hebrews, Like the people who read and sang Psalm 95, which the author of Hebrews quotes throughout our passage here and what we looked at last week, every one of us are living together with them in the same story. What we need to see this morning is that we all alike are the wilderness people of God on our way to the rest that God has promised So the author of Hebrews in warning these first readers and through his word warning us today not to turn away is asking, do you know what story you're in? Do you know what story you're in? Do you know where it's going? Do you know how the story ends? And are you holding fast until the end? Because if we remember what the story is all about, And if we remember where the story's headed, we will endure to the end. This is the message that the author of Hebrews wants us to take home, to take away with us. We won't be shocked when the plot suddenly seems to shift. We won't be prone to fall away. We will, by God's grace, endure to the end. So there's three things that the author of Hebrews would tell us from this text this morning. First, that we need to inhabit the right story. We must inhabit the right story. Second, we must remember the end of the story. We must remember the end of the story. And third, we must strive to finish the story. So inhabit the right story, remember the end of the story, and strive to finish the story. But first, let's pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, we do pray that you would work powerfully in our hearts through this portion of your word We need to remember who we are, we need to remember whose we are. We need to remember what's real about this world in the face of so many things that would draw us away from the one true story of who you are and what you are doing to rescue a people for yourself from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. Oh God, would you give us hope this morning, not because of anything we're able to do, but because of what you have done in your son, what you are continuing to do by your spirit, through your word, among your people, and what you will yet do when Jesus Christ returns. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so first inhabit the right story. And again, in, in our study of Hebrews, there are two things that I really felt like as we began the study of Hebrews several weeks ago that I've been praying we would take away with us. The first is the need to persevere the need to persevere in the face of so many things that would draw us away, to not turn away from Jesus. You know, so we, we talked early on about the reality of deconstruction and de-churching and the fact that so many people who were raised in Christian homes are now turning away from the faith entirely. And the pressure that's put on us in this world in which we live to turn away from Jesus, how could such things possibly be true? And the author of Hebrews is calling these initial readers and and us to not turn away from the only source of life, from the true salvation that is in Jesus Christ, to some lesser things. That's, That's one thing I've been praying that we would take away from our study of Hebrews over the course of these several months that we'll be in it. But the other thing is this, that we will recognize our continuity with the people of God in the Old Testament. That this line that we often draw in our, in our minds between Malachi and Matthew is not as thick as we think it is. That there's one thing that God is doing to draw people for, to himself from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. And what's happening among the people of God in the Old Testament is not merely preparatory, um, not merely an example, but is actually part of the one story that we're now grafted into and so when we look at the Old Testament, when we look at the people of the Exodus generation, when we consider those who were hearing and receiving Psalm 95 from David and singing it throughout uh, temple and synagogue worship, when we hear those things, we're, we're not just given an example. We're reminded of who we are. We some, see something of our own identity as the people of God. We are reminded in Hebrews of this continuity That we are numbered among the wilderness people of God, making our way by faith to the promised rest. So let's think about that. Think about the ways in which we see the continuity just within this passage. We've heard the same promises as the people in the Old Testament. Verse 1 Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should have seemed to have failed to reach it. So that promise still stands. Verse two, the good news came to us just as to them. That's verse two. Verse nine, you can jump down to that. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There's this sense in which we're all being called into and and invited to be the recipients of this promise of rest. We'll we'll unpack in the second uh, point what this rest is. But again, there's a continuity. We've received the same promise promise. We've all heard the same promise. We're on the same journey. This Exodus generation that that, uh, the author of Hebrews is pointing to, we know who he's referring to back at the end of chapter 3. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt by Moses? With whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? This is the Exodus generation. The people that God had rescued from Egypt out of the house of slavery, who had promised, to whom he had promised he would lead them into the promised land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey. They got to the edge of the promised land. The spies were sent in. The spies returned. Two gave a favorable report. Ten said, there's no way we can take it. The people rebelled. They rebelled against Moses, yes. They rebelled against the the testimony of Joshua and Caleb, yes. Ultimately, they were rebelling against God who said, I promised you this place. You've forgotten everything that I've done for you over these many years. You, oh adults of the Exodus generation, will wander in the wilderness until you perish. But their children, who were there with them, would come back to the edge of the promised land, and Joshua would lead them in. Now, they were God's chosen people. They were delivered from slavery. They were not yet home. They were not yet to the promised land, and they were wandering in the wilderness in a land not their own. Now, if you've read 1 Peter, there should be things ringing in your mind right now. Peter begins chapter 1, verse 1, by saying that he's writing to the elect exiles of the dispersion. We're the same kinds of people, elect, God's chosen people, exiles, not yet home, of the dispersion, scattered throughout a land that's not our own. Chapter two, I'm sorry, verse two of 1 Peter, on throughout the rest of the letter, he's going to reinforce the fact that we are people who have been delivered from slavery to sin. We are on the same journey through the wilderness of this world as God's chosen people on the way to his promised rest. We've received the same warnings. In Psalm 95, David said of those people in the Exodus generation that they hardened their hearts and did not enter the rest. And so David says, today, O people who are hearing this Psalm, do not harden your hearts, lest you not be able to enter God's rest. That same word of warning is drawn out by the author of Hebrews from Psalm 95 for his generation and for our generation. We all receive the warning. O'Palmer Robertson in his little uh, reflection on Hebrews titled God's People in the Wilderness says this, the today of the psalmist confronts each generation. Every one of us needs to hear that today, do not harden your hearts, and realize that's a warning for God's people in every generation. It's a warning for us today. We've heard the same promises. We're on the same journey. We've received the same warnings. We risk the same outcome. Those adults, the adults of the Exodus generation, perished in the wilderness, they did not enter God's rest. And the author of Hebrews is saying, don't make the same mistake. Don't harden your heart. Don't fail to heed the warning. Believe the promise, enter the rest. This is our story. This is who we are. As Christians, we are in the wilderness. We are the wilderness people of God. We're walking by faith in a world that's not our own. We're facing trials and temptations that call for endurance as we make our way to God's promised rest. This is our identity. This is our story. If we're gonna make sense of reality, we need to inhabit the right story. It will help us endure our personal suffering with hope. There are two verses that, that, I, that I love that are often taken out of context. Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. One of my uh, favorite memes. There's so many good memes out there. One of my favorite memes is I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. Another verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And how many times has that verse been ripped out of its context to, to promise you know, in, a, in a health and wealth kind of a way? If you just believe enough, you'll have those riches. Listen, those are both verses. They're God's word, We ought to memorize those and so many others. We ought to take them to heart. But the context of those verses reminds us of the story. When Paul said, I can do all things through him who gives me strength, it's right on the tail end of saying, I know how to be content whatever the circumstances. Whether I'm facing want or plenty. And then you could go back and look at his autobiographical commentary throughout other letters of his in which he talks about the extreme persecution and suffering he has faced throughout, throughout his ministry. I know how to be content in those kinds of circumstances. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's the context. That's the story. Jeremiah 29 11, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. This is to people who were in exile whose homeland had been conquered, they had lost their homes, they had lost their country, they had lost the temple, which was central to Old Testament worship. No more access. Yet God says to them, many of whom would die in Babylon, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans for your welfare and not for evil. Plans to give you a future and a hope. Some of us are gonna face suffering throughout the rest of our earthly life. We're gonna face hardships that we might expect will end if God were faithful. And yet God says, I will be with you through the waters. I will carry you through, not around. I will give you hope and a future, even if that hope and future begins fully on the day that you die and go to be with him. But even now, God says, I am with you. That future hope, that future promise of rest, as we'll see as we get to the end of the sermon, is brought into the here and now. But again, the story, we've got to inhabit the right story. It helps us make sense of our personal suffering. It helps us make sense of our place in the world as the church, as Christians. What should we expect as Christians in the world? Should we expect power? Should we expect to be in control? Jesus told us what to expect. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. It's John 15, 20. Or John 16, 33, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. To the degree that we as Christians have influence, have power in the public sphere, in the, in the, in the realm of the world, we should use it for the public good. But if we have no power, we're in good company because Jesus set his aside during the time of his earthly pilgrimage. The result is as Christians, we don't fear what others fear. So much of what drives culture, the media, politics, culture as a whole is fear. As Christians, we inhabit a different story, a better one. We don't fear what others fear. We know how the story ends. We know who's sovereign over all things even now. We know who lifts up rulers, and we know who takes them away. And so we pray. We remember who the real enemy is. We live as salt and light. We share the reason for our hope, and we just keep walking. As Christians, we must inhabit the right story. But secondly, as Christians, we need to know the end of the story. What, what was the end of the story for the people of the Exodus generation? Again, it was Canaan. It was a place It was the promised land. Psalm 95, David looks back again on that story in Numbers 13 and 14, which I recounted just a second ago concerning um, the, the, the failure of the people to believe the report of Joshua and Caleb and enter the promised land. So for the people of the Exodus generation, it was Canaan. It was a place. It was a strip of land in Palestine. That's where they would experience God's rest on every side. But what is the rest of which David wrote in Psalm 95? Imagine the people who first received what David wrote in Psalm 95, saying, you're, t- you're telling me about this rest. We're here. Like, like we're in Canaan. You're saying that we need to not harden our hearts so that we'll enter this rest, but we're, we're here, David. What are you talking about? And what David is saying in Psalm 95 is, no, there's a greater rest. The rest of Canaan actually pointed to something beyond itself, to a greater rest that we're yet to enter. And so therefore, do not harden your hearts. And the author of Hebrews agrees. Take a look at verse eight. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today. And we could go on and keep, and keep unpacking that. We will to a degree in just a little bit. But the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, I want you, oh, people to whom I'm writing, to enter God's rest. Don't harden your heart lest you fail to do it. His application point is not, so pack your bags, let's get out of Rome and make our way back to the land of Canaan, that's not what he says. The rest to which the author of Hebrews is pointing, the rest to which David is pointing, the rest to which Canaan itself was pointing was a rest that had nothing to do with a strip of land in the Middle East. It had everything to do with the presence of God on a renewed earth. What will God's rest be like? Look at verse four and look at verses nine and 10. Verse four, the author says, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And then in verses 9 and 10, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. God rested on the seventh day. He completed the work of his creation, and ever since then, God has been resting we too the author of Hebrews tells us will rest from our work all the toil that accompanies life in the wilderness all that makes us weary all that keeps us awake at night all that breaks our heart all that the world is trying to escape we will be delivered from we will enter God's rest Uh, will, Will that be a place? Jesus said the meek shall inherit the earth. The author of Hebrews will go on to talk about a city that has foundations to a kingdom that we are receiving. So yes, in a sense, it is a place. It is a renewed earth. And yet, it is, most importantly, being with Jesus, being with the Lord, being in God's presence forever. We can think, can't we, about Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall, walking with the Lord in the cool, of the day, enjoying perfect fellowship with God. It's a preview. It wouldn't be right to say we're returning to Eden because what God has for his people that is yet to come is so much greater, even than that. That's the end of the story. We must remember the end of the story even as we seek to inhabit the right story. But third, the author of Hebrews tells us we need to strive to reach the end of the story. We just strive to finish the story. There's no less a call to endure here in this passage than there was in the first part of it, in chapter three, that we looked at last week. There is a call to endure. Verse one, the author says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Now, how do we think about that idea of fear when it comes to the Christian life? Wendy and I watched the movie uh, Free Solo last night. Free Solo. Alex Hanold climbed El Capitan in Yosemite, Yosemite National Park. 3,000 foot, like just vertical granite wall. Free Solo, by the way, means climbing without ropes. He just, I, listen, I know he made it. I've watched the movie before. And last night, I was still like so completely stressed out watching this film. He made it. Now, you can question the wisdom of his decision to climb that rock face, but he would say, don't call me fearless. He, he said throughout the documentary, I'm scared of that wall. His fear actually drove him to prepare His fear drove him to actually be on the rock face with ropes, mapping out a course. His fear didn't paralyze him and keep him from climbing. It prepared him to make the climb. And that's the idea behind the fear that the author of Hebrews is pointing to here. It's not a paralyzing fear that would cause you to draw back. It's the kind of fear that you need to have in order to press on, to take very seriously what's in front of you. The author of Hebrews is saying, take very seriously what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus would say, count the cost. The author of Hebrews says, be prepared. Be prepared. It's not enough, the author says throughout this passage, to simply have heard the promise. It's not enough to simply have heard God say, I will take you into my rest. You must believe the promise. And then out of that faith, obey. Throughout this passage, there is a call to obey. Verse 2, for good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listen. Listen, that is Joshua and Caleb. They weren't along with them trusting the promise that God made Verse 11, strive to enter that rest. It's a call to work, to obey. Strive to enter that rest, verse 11, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. I love, let us therefore so that no one may fall. This is a call to the same kind of exhortation and encouragement and and challenging one another and, and, and prodding one another on to calling one another to to follow Jesus, to speak the truth in love to one another concerning these things that are of most importance. Will we hold fast? Will we inhabit the right story? Will we remember, I need to be reminded of where the story's headed? And will I keep walking? We need one another lest any of us fall away. Coming back to the the reality of falling away, some studies are showing that 60% of children who are raised in the church leave the church by the time they're in high school, or I'm sorry, just after high school. Let us fear, let us strive, lest any of us would turn away. So, So strive to enter the rest, right? How do we reach the end of the story? How do we continue on? Strive. Fear, work, obey. And yet, paradoxically, this passage also calls us to rest. Calls us to rest. Take a look with me at verse three and at verse ten. Verse three, for we who have believed enter that rest. Now the the Greek construction there, it, it isn't entirely clear that it's pointing forward in a will enter that rest or back into a have entered that rest or presently have the opportunity to enter that rest. All are possible. But then look down at verse 10. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. There's a picture here of what you've often heard as the already and the not yet. Advent is a time to remember the already and the not yet. The already of the kingdom of God. Jesus has come. He lived the life that we couldn't live and died in our place, perceiving the wrath that we deserve from God, that all who look to him in faith would receive the promise of eternal life. That's happened. Jesus rose, he ascended, he is at the right hand of the Father. His first advent is complete. His second advent is yet to occur. He will return. So we have this sense in which The kingdom has already come. The spirit has been poured out. People are putting their trust in Jesus Christ. They are beginning to experience the first fruits of eternal life even now. And yet Jesus has not yet consummated his kingdom. He will come yet again. There's an already not yet when it comes to the Sabbath rest of God as well. We get a foretaste of that eternal rest when we practice weekly Sabbath rest. It's a gift that God invites us to open as a preview. Christmas is coming, right? The practice of weekly Sabbath is like a gift that's under the tree, and Jesus is saying, You don't have to wait till Christmas to open it. Go ahead and open it now. Keep enjoying it. It's the gift that keeps on giving. It's just gonna keep getting better and better and better until I return and you enter into the Sabbath rest that I offer you for all eternity. That's the rest I'm leading you into as the wilderness people of God. I can't wait to be with you then fully and forever, but for now, I am with you offering you my rest now. Enter in, receive a foretaste of it through weekly Sabbath rest. It's not just a ceasing from our labors, it is that but it's also a foretaste of the fellowship that is to come. And when we come together in weekly worship like this, we're being reminded of what story we're in. I've often said the call to worship is a call back into reality. Whenever we hear the call to worship on a Sunday morning or whenever we gather for worship, we're being called back into what's real. You could say, in a sense, we're being re-storied when we come together every week in worship. The author of Hebrews is reminding us what story we're in. He's calling us to inhabit that story, to be who we are in the story that God has written. It's a story that makes sense of the suffering. It's a story that provides hope in the face of hardship. And it's a story that offers rest both now and forevermore. But who will lead us into that rest? It's interesting. In verse The author says, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. The the Greek construction there for Joshua is the same construction for the word Jesus. Jesus is simply the Greek version of Joshua. Jesus is the true and greater Joshua. Joshua led the people of the, the children of the Exodus generation into the promised land that was Canaan. And God, through Joshua, gave them rest on every side. We follow the true and greater Joshua. We follow Jesus, who has gone before us. He has made a way through the wilderness. He is there at the right hand of the Father. He will return. But now, by his Spirit, through his word, he leads his people. So that by grace, we can just keep walking. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. You are the one who overcame the world we can hitch our hope to you and know that you will lead us forward into that rest that even now we get an opportunity to taste. Oh Lord, would you help us to receive now all that you have for us, remembering what story we're in, how it's gonna end, and remembering that by your grace, we can strive to carry on. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.